Welcome to Pretty Good Vibrations, a show that analyzes and celebrates pop and rock music and its crucial role throughout our lives. My name's Dan Koch, and I've been a professional musician for most of the last 20 years, first as the songwriter in the emo pop band Sherwood, then as a commercial composer. Today, we're talking about major label debuts from rock bands in the first half of the 1990s, an extremely formative time for both myself and my guest. We talk a little about the differences between major and indie labels, the role of radio and bigger recording budgets, our own band's experiences of life on indie labels, as well as getting into some of our all-time favorite albums by bands like Nirvana, Weezer, The Smashing Pumpkins, and more. If you find yourself enjoying this episode, please do me a favor and share it with a few friends that you think would dig it as well. All right, let's get into it. Our topic today, major label rock band debut albums from the early 90s. More on that later. My guest today, Aaron Lunsford, drummer of the band As Cities Burn, famed sometimes barbecue chef, amateur stand-up comic. No more. And and host of the new The Music Draft podcast. Is that the name of the show? It's the current working title that I think will stay that way. But okay, the music draft. Yeah. Until somebody comes up with a better idea. Three of the four things you just mentioned, I do not do at all okay, anymore. Let's hear them. You don't play drums in a city's burn. Nope. I don't. Someone make, else does, or nobody does. Nobody does. I don't cook barbecue fa- famously anymore. Okay. And I haven't. I haven't done stand up in since before COVID, really. So I'm really. I'm really off to a great start here. Yeah. But <laughs> you episode. nailed it. Thanks for plugging the new podcast that I've released one episode of. and have yet to schedule another one so what we're talking about today 1990 to 1994 major label debuts for rock bands let's talk about major labels a little bit so as as you helped me out with donald pressman uh donald passman 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 Passman, who wrote everything you need to know about the music industry great um or music business great book he says a major label is a label that has its own distribution. That means they are big enough that they have their own trucks and planes to get the records into stores. Now, that's a little different today because so much of distribution is non-physical. It's digital. But these are the Sonys, the Universals, the Warner yeah. Brothers, the Atlantics, the Columbias of the world. And independent labels are labels that put out records, they finance and promote them, but they always have to sign up with someone else to distribute their records mm-hmm. because they don't have that kind of infrastructure. Yeah. This is your your tooth and nail, your epitaph, your uh, fat records, whatever. And we're talking major label debuts. I think it's interesting for this time period specifically, one, because that was like the end game for everybody. Like being on an indie label wasn't really viable for having a career as much. I mean, yeah, I, in the early 90s, yeah, some people did it, but if you didn't at least have some sort of upstream deal where maybe you're on sub pop or something like that, but then they, you know, there there's something that is pushing you um, up higher than that. You know, I think that that's not just about radio either, because think of a band like Fish. You could think like, oh, Fish could be on an indie label. They're not really on the radio, but I guarantee you they were on a major label because you have to get all the Fish albums out yeah. to fans, right? 
I wonder if it wasn't even that hard to get a major label deal back because the, there's so many major label bands that you haven't ever heard of, sure. right? Like they they buy bands and then shelve them, like never put them out. Or right. like uh, I read the book for the drummer of um, Semisonic. So you want to be a rock star, right? So good. Their first record sold 30,000 records in 1990, whatever, when bands sold millions of records. Yeah. Acidies Burn sold more records than their first record, right? Right. So like being on a major label, I don't. it sounds like it means a lot, but it didn't actually mean that much if it didn't hit. Um, yeah. Or if you didn't have a champion there to get behind you and right. you didn't have the people to push you to the radio. So indie records in like the 2000s had budgets to get major label sounds. And I feel like in the 90, early 90s, late 80s, stuff like that, like doing an indie record, it was like, oh, this is obviously an indie record. And there's a charm to that. But sonically, all the records we're talking about are just like the best you could do like in that era. Tell me a little bit about yourself in 1990 and 1994. I mean, 1990, I was seven. So none of this was on the radar. Even any of the albums that might come up tonight would not have been on my radar when they were coming out because I was seven. Yeah. So Nevermind, Nevermind comes out in 1991, the end of 91. I'm eight. You're eight. <laughs> yeah. We start. I, and I remember kind of started hearing about it and. Kind of, you know, a little bit, yeah. in, you know, in passing on the radio. But so 94 to 95 were, was where I was like, oh, there's this type of music that I like. And it is everything right now. Like, it's the shit. Like, it's yep. the biggest bands in the world. It's all over the radio. Like, it's Justin Bieber. It's Shawn Mendes. Like, right. Taylor. That was the 90s in this time period. So that, to me, that's why I find it so interesting because it, yeah, my kids are growing up with only pop music that's popular. Yeah. And it just wasn't like that when we were kids. I, I don't think so. There was a Back variety. Back in the good old days when straight white men could have all the cultural cachet they wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Singing about their sadnesses. Yes. But it was also, there's an interesting parallel between this and hip hop too, as well. Hmm. Gangster rap and alt rock were like the two dominant forces. No, that's true. It was not, it is not true that in the early nineties, white male music dominated the airwaves. Like that's not yeah. true. Pop music was still pop music. And uh, yeah, that was really the blossoming of hip hop yes. uh, in terms of like just starting to sell tens of millions of copies of these albums. But it is true that a certain kind of, you know, guy rock like Billy Corgan was like one of the biggest rock stars in the world in 1993 and 94. Kurt Cobain was one of the most famous people in the world, yes. you know, at the height of Nirvana. That part, it, it, your kids don't know anything like that no. now. And it, and it was coming out of that, you know, the 80s stuff that was weird with rock. Like, right. Like there was a lack of authenticity, I think, in rock music. And then that just like, yeah, you know. Cobain and everybody else just busted that door down. So I think that if you were our age in that time period, you were just primed up to like get into this shit. Yep. Especially, I mean, I lived in Atlanta and Arkansas, you know, so middle America, basically it's either that or just like culturally appropriating hip hop culture, which is like, those are what, your options. Yeah, yeah. That was literally it. So, um, or being a redneck and you know, which I, I do like nineties country, but that it was not formative to me. So this um, 
topic is so exciting to me because uh, I, I feel lucky. I feel like it hit at a time. And totally. I, I look back and I have friends, even that are musicians, that did not experience this at the time because they were like Christian culture or whatever. And yeah. they had to discover it later. So um, what was it like for you? Well, so yeah, in 1990, I'm also seven or I turned seven that year. I'm basically first and second grade playing T-ball and then single A little league. Around seven or eight, my mom turns me on to the Beach Boys and yeah. surf music, which is basically one of my two chapters. Like if you could split my musical life of the last 32 years into two main lanes, Lane one is the Beach Boys and lane two is rock music. Yeah. Most of what I dig, most of what I've written as a songwriter, most of any of my musical life as a listener or creator is pretty much the Beach Boys and rock. Yeah. And so around 1990, maybe 91 is when I get into the Beach Boys. And then 1993 is, which we'll talk about later, is when I get into rock. Jump ahead to 94. This is the year I'm turning 11, fifth and sixth grade. And in sixth grade, I moved from public school to a small private school. So I went from picked on a lot, not bullied like physically. I wasn't beat up, but I was like verbally bullied, regularly made fun of for two or three years in elementary yeah. school. Then I moved to this little Christian school. I'm like the cool public school kid. I'm a big fish in a small oh, pond. Okay. And I'm allowed to listen to secular edgy. rock radio. I'm, I'm yeah. so fucking edgy. And I'm allowed to listen to rock radio. And I think that that was a legitimate boon to my self-image as a sixth grader. Like, I think it actually did work on my behalf. But before that, I wasn't at hip-hop and R&B. And I listened to Hot 97.7. That was the Bay Area station. And mm -hmm. then in fifth grade my buddy Mark turns me on to live one Oh five, the rock station. I remember sitting in his bedroom. I remember that he had Brown walls. Like this is from, you know, this is from almost 20 years ago, a single afternoon of listening to rock. And, you know, I, I went almost overnight from salt and Peppa, crisscross MC hammer <laughs> and Warren right, G right, right. Yeah. to like the pumpkins, Nirvana, Pearl jam. Yeah. But this is a fun era for you to have picked. It's a fun era for me to think about because, yeah, musically, those two things, the Beach Boys and Rock, those are the two big formative uh, moves yeah. in my life. Yeah. So I, I almost forgot to mention it. 1993 is when I started to play drums as well. Yeah. The guy who taught me to play drums was in oldies and shit. Like we would do Beatles songs or Chuck Berry and... And so I had this like tool of like starting to learn to play drums. And then whenever I started discovering all this music, I was like, oh, holy shit. I can just like turn my boom box all the way up and just play along. Yeah. Uh, no, like no headphones or anything. Wow. Just boom box up to 10 and playing along in my room. So um, kind of funny. It, it almost like derailed me from being a good drummer because like, <laughs> you know, the guy who taught me to play drums, he's like a jazz drummer yeah. and uh you know marching band like you know teaches all them like uh and then i just like discovered this shit <laughs> yeah then grunge comes in and just knocks you off course <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah but it's fun it was like accessible like you could just hear it and play it it wasn't like you needed to learn music yeah. uh so that that sounds like reductionist uh i mean some of these drummers we're going to talk about that are in these bands are all-time 
great rock drummers. Totally. I started playing drums. Drums was my first real instrument. I played piano a little bit in elementary school, maybe three years. Quit to play drums. I believe, though, that that was seventh grade. So for me, it would have been 95, 96, just after this period. A little bit about eligibility of, of what counts as a major label debut from 1990 to 1994. Soundgarden, not eligible because their second album, Louder Than Love, came out on A&M in 89. So They were early. They were early. Soundgarden had a bunch of records before Super Unknown. Yeah. Yeah. So Smashing Pumpkins debut album, Gish, you might think that that was released on a major label, uh, but it was actually a little subsidiary called Caroline Records, and it was low budget. They made it for $20,000. So I thought that doesn't really qualify as what we're talking about. Not in 1991. Siamese Dream in 93 cost $250,000. So nice. that's what we're considering their debut. Oasis's albums, not released on a major. Don't qualify. Uh, even though their first two records on Creation Records in the UK sold a combined 31 million albums, the first two Oasis records. I don't want to fuck up a future podcast, but mm -hmm. I think What's the Story Morning Glory is the greatest rock album of the 90s. And so that's very insane to me that it was technically an indie label. Yeah, and technically indie, whoever yeah. owned that label, like, wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Your beloved Red Hot Chili Peppers had already released four major yeah. label albums by the time that Blood Sugar Sex Magic came out in 91. <sighs> yeah. Beastie Boys, on their third major label album by the time Check Your Head comes out in 92, so they are not qualified. Foo Fighters, 95. Just missed the cutoff. Offspring mm -hmm. were on an indie label, Epitaph, until 1997. 95 is a tough one for me because 95 is when this shit takes off to me. Yeah. There might be 20, like 20 all-time great records for me. You know, tentatively anyway, we're planning on, we're going to do the other half of this, 95 and 99. Assuming people like this episode, the Pixies, Doolittle, 4AD, and Electra came out on a major, 1989. Mm. Uh, REM, Green, 1988. What we've done here is you and I have each made a top six, and what that's going to work out to is our collective top eight albums, basically. And we're going to go from reverse order from number six to number one. We'll take turns. We have a lot in, in common and a few different ones. We're going to take a quick break, though, and we're going to come back and get into it. All right, Aaron. So we're going to start with your number six album. This is yeah. Bush 16 Stone. Tell me about this record. Okay. I don't get to announce my, my own album. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's, I'll take that again. Yeah. Okay. All right, we're no, going to start. Like, keep, keep all that in. Keep all it in. I want people to know <laughs> how you're just trying to steamroll through my own list that you already know that I don't even get to reveal to you. You're right, man. I am I am really not using my privilege well here. Okay. Well, it's I'm sorry. Next time, I'll, I'm going to defer to you. So it's no, Bush it's fine. 16 Stone. Yeah. I loved this record. Tell me about it. All right. When you say loved... I still like it. In fact, um, well, I, <clears throat> I don't want to step on your sort of introduction, but... No, I want to hear from you. Yeah. Recently, I listened to Everything Zen again, which was 
one of the singles that I didn't love at the time. I mean, it was fine. Like I wouldn't turn it off on the radio, but I was definitely a come down glycerine man. Yeah. Those were like my two jams. And then machine head, maybe third. I would have definitely put everything Zen fourth or lower, maybe fifth after a song like alien, but re-listening to it. I actually think that it's like almost a perfectly produced rock song. Yeah. It sounds incredible. The drums could be a little clearer and punchier, but other than that, like it sounds so alive in 2022. I mean, I was just surprised. Like I would recommend if you're not listening on headphones right now, like switch to headphones because I'm going to play a little bit of everything Zen here in a second and just hear this. Well, the guitars are all right. The guitars on this record are just so out front on every on the mix, you know. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Like when I discovered this record, discovered it was a huge hit. Like, I, <laughs> like I found it when you're twelve or yeah. whatever age I was. Because um, I definitely didn't discover it in 1994. I think it took a minute for Bush to hit. Because to me, 95, 96 feels more about the time frame that it was like the videos were like in heavy, heavy rotation. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, so because, you know, they're from England. They're, they're British. So sometimes a British band, it will take a while for it to hit in the States or vice versa. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But this was one of those where like one of the first ones that I felt like, oh, this is mine. Huh. Nobody, nobody showed me this. I saw yeah. it on MTV or whatever, and I thought, oh, fuck yeah. yeah. Someone like, showed it to you. <laughs> Fucking MTV showed it But I mean, you. like, it wasn't like yeah, a friend yeah, yeah. told me about right, it right. or or yeah. I'd heard a parent or somebody's older brother. Yeah. Like, it felt like I discovered that I liked it on my own because, yes, MTV showed it to me, but I was right. like, no, this is like, okay. Yeah. Fuck yeah. And so um, it became one of those records where... Uh, again, going back to playing drums in my rooms, like I just would learn the entire record and play along to it. Yeah. Their second record was fine. It had a couple razor blade suitcase. Yeah. A couple good songs, couple good songs, but this one, it captured a moment, a zeitgeist, a real period in time. I feel like it actually doesn't get enough credit. I feel like it got lost in the shuffle because Bush became not cool. And well, and he became a, a tabloid star married Gwen Stefani. It, and, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, when this came out, it was the fucking shit. And it was again, awesome. still in heavy rotation on rock radio. So. Yeah. Well, let's start with everything Zen. Cause I talked it up, but we'll, we'll play a bit more. So here, listen to the guitars, especially on this track. It's unique. Like, I don't think anybody else sounded like what they were doing no, in it's that really era. Cool. It's really cool. I could definitely see the drummer in the mix. Like, hey, man, you think you turn up the snare a little bit? Like, it sounds to me like they just didn't get a very good drum sound or drum mix. And so they're maybe bursting those guitars to, to compensate. It, yeah. the, the, the drums just don't. They're not hitting like they should. I'd love to hear a slight re-record of that record with just better drum sounds. Yeah. But oh my gosh, the bass and guitars on that, they are just bursting out of that mix. It's incredible. It was a fun record to try to play along to. Like, It's all going to come back to that for, for a lot yeah. of this stuff. It's like how I relate to how it formed me as like a musician. Yeah. Half my list is that, so... 
Well, you wanted to hear uh, testosterone or alien. What do you want me to play? Do testosterone. I think it's a nice deep cut. Okay, yeah. I think I don't like this song. Really? We're, I think we're going okay. to come to blows here. Let's hear it. All right. Uh, let's double check. Got a big old gun. Got a big old gun. Got a big old bullet. And I guess you could say. Yeah, I guess you could say. These records are hard because <laughs> a lot of these records, like half the record is a single. Yeah. Like yeah. to find a deep cut. I told you I'm leaning into that because when I do, for instance, the tournament episodes, it's good to have some kind of objective layer and not just like, well, I'll just put my four favorite songs in an in order. Yeah. I, so I like to just base it on Spotify plays or Apple music popularity because that's what that's what people are listening to when they put on this record or this band or whatever, you know? So it's fun to just play the tracks that aren't going to get played on any of those kind of episodes. Yeah. All right. So my number six, not on your list. All right. I love it. Rage Against the Machine, self-titled. Okay. I knew it at the time. Of course, some of these tracks were on the radio. The radio play really bumps up with the second record and Bulls on Parade. That's when they become completely ubiquitous in my mind. I don't really know how this band was this fully formed on their first record. This is not a band that put out records before on indies. This is their first album. Well, because Tom went to Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> What Tom's doing, what the drummer and bassist are doing, and what Zach is doing, it's so distinct, it's so unique, and it's so fully realized on this first record that it kind of blows my mind. I'm not a Rage fan. Okay. This is a, a time where, like, I don't even know what to say about Rage. Yeah. Because I can't even stress how much I don't care about Rage. And <laughs> this is going to... This might upset some people. I really like Audio Slave. <laughs> no, okay, now I knew you were gonna get. I knew you were gonna say that. Okay. Once I knew that you were gonna try and troll, I knew you were gonna say you liked Audio I'm Slave. I'm not but trolling. If you like this Audio is how Slave, I believe. This is how I believe. That I just don't imagine not liking Rage. Like I know it, that they are different, but they're seventy five percent the same. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm not even saying, I'm not saying like, oh, yeah. I think Rage is a bad band. You're just I'm saying not a fan. It never hit for me, never yeah. connected with me. I, I know all the, like, dun -dun 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 -dun. okay, yeah. yeah, sick, whatever. Didn't do anything for me ever growing up. And like now it's like, yeah, I'm aware. Yeah. I guess it's kind of a troll, but. Uh, I don't want to hijack your pick with well, Audio fine. Slave. I'm but. just going to play I'm going to play <laughs> some of Bomb Track. This is track 1 off the self-titled Rage record. And then it's you're going to play favorite. Audio Slave, right? And then <laughs> immediately followed by <laughs> Cochise by Audio okay. Slave. No, uh here's uh here's Bomb Track. I think that this song is incredible. I would just give it a give it a fresh hearing and let me I will. let me yeah, know if you I'm think. open. Right. I'm open. All right. Let's see what happens to Lunsford. Here's Bomb Track. Yeah, 
anything pulling at your heart there? I I guess what I'm saying is like I get it. I yeah. You get I'm it. not like perplexed. Like, why do people like rage against the machine? Yeah. I don't know. Were they some sort of godfather of like rap rock? I guess. Yeah, and you know this is the thing. I think that they get unfairly blamed for other for rap Lamp rock Biscuit. and new metal bands, right? But like, just because they did it kind of first ish and best. <laughs> we shouldn't really blame them for the bands that were worse than them at doing what they did really well, you know? Well, and we can address that. There's a band we both have on our list, I'm sure, that we can have a lot to blame for. A lot to blame for. But <laughs> we'll get no, I know what you mean. I, I, I agree. It's like the derivative of anything that's cool always ends up being kind of shitty. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I kind of like Limp Biscuit. In, in some ways, it, I appreciate it. Uh, Lincoln Park fucked hard, in my opinion, in, in yeah. a lot of ways. Like, I think Chester was a really good vocalist. I feel like I was probably never mature enough for Rage when they were like hitting. Like, hmm. if I were 18, whenever Rage came out or 17, yeah. like, I could see, like, oh, okay, I'm in the middle of this, right? But I don't know. The kids I remember liking Rage Against the Machine were like kids I was like scared to hang out with. Yeah. I could see that. Did you like them then, or is this retro? Because I think that's important. I definitely liked the next record. I liked Bulls on Parade a lot. I remember like watching that video as any, as often as I could. I think though that I was never like a full on like I never had the Che Guevara T shirt. Put it that way, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, okay. Neither through rage nor through my own radical politics or whatever. Actually, it's an interesting point. I I don't think I ever latched on to the politics in Rage, but I did latch on to similar politics in punk bands. I don't know what was going on there. For some reason, like when I really figured out I loved them was probably a few years later, maybe on tour with Sherwood and playing songs from Battle of Los Angeles, especially Testify and Sleep Now in the Fire. I think when I was a little further on in my own career and writing and guitar playing ability, those riffs just kind of boggled my mind. And I think that was like a re-entry point for me. Yeah, Chris Cornell, he took them where he they they really always could be. <laughs> that is Let them realize their full in, potential. Such incredible sacrilege to Rage fans. That's very funny. Uh, we're going to play at least clips from two songs per album. Not We're only going like, to play one. So here's a little bit of Killing in the Name. It has its own very infamous moment at Woodstock 99, which is well documented in both of the documentaries that have come up in the come out in the last nine, 18 months I, about that festival. How does that happen? Fire Festival puts out to Woodstock. Put, like I don't know. Deep impact on Armageddon. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Here's Killing in the Name. Okay, now that I do feel like we kind of can blame them for Limp Bizkit when I hear that guitar riff. Every time I hear that song come on, I know it's a Rage song, but every time it starts, I say, oh, is this a Korn song? Yeah, it sounds <laughs> so much like new metal. And they kind of move away from that, right? Yeah. But that a bunch of other bands take that riff and that approach and like, oh, this is what we're going to do. But here's the part of the song I actually meant to play. Some of those that work forces are the same that bar crosses. Yeah, that shit's sick. Some of those that work forces 
It's cool. It's cool, dude. Do guitar players not get bored playing a riff over and over like that? Like, just depends on how hard you're vibing, man. If you can get in that sweet spot, okay, you you can go indefinitely. I think because drummers, like I know a drummer, like it feels good to stay in a a groove and and whatever. But guitar players, it seems because it's just your fingers. Wait, do you not play guitar? I do play guitar. (laughs) Uh, If I was I don't know how, if I were Tom Morello, I don't know how I would feel about playing guitar. <laughs> Do you find yourself returning to these records for similar reasons or in certain moods or to like accomplish anything specific? Some of them are just so fucking good that I just listen to them still for enjoyment. Right. You know, uh, yep. some of them are just still in such heavy rotation on actual radio. Right. When we get in the car, like we don't always do the iPhone Bluetooth thing. Sometimes we just turn on the fucking radio and see what happens. Wow. You guys really live <laughs> on the edge. Lunsford. Bro, I was talking to Lunsford and he's like, they listen to the fucking radio sometimes. It's crazy. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like the, these, and I know classic rock, same thing. You turn on the classic rock station, Led Zeppelin has a lasting effect, but yeah. I'm saying like on the modern rock stations, totally. Like, not classic rock stations, like the stations that are playing whatever is popular modern rock now, Imagine Dragons or Black Keys, whatever. Sure. Yeah. yeah, they still play Smells Like Teen Spirit daily, I'm sure. What do I use them for now? Like, I don't know, like different vibes I'm looking for or karaoke. Um, I'm not a big fan of nostalgia, so I actually try to steer clear of that because nostalgia yeah. really depresses me. And so yeah. if I can't oh. appreciate <laughs> yeah. Um, that's another, don't, don't go therapist on me. Um, I'm, I'll hold off for your sake, but okay, I, I reserve the right to bring it back up later <laughs> okay, in this episode. Okay. If it seems that just applicable, <laughs> that just triggered something big for you. Like <laughs> doesn't like nostalgia. What could that be about? Okay. No, I've just always like wanted to have the thought of trying to push forward in some way and not be, not be like a creative dinosaur or not. Right reject what is new just because it's new yeah in fact these you know if we had done sort of a wider like a tournament style episode and we if we had had Candlebox or hole or collective soul or something those will take me back to a moment tracks like in the meantime by space hog will take me back to the 90s because it's not really still in rotation for me right But most of the albums, all the albums we're talking about today, they they have stayed in the stable. So they're not nostalgic insofar it's like, oh, I hadn't heard that in a while. But I would say that they're grounding. Like if I were feeling panicky and anxious, it might help to throw on the Blue Album or Siamese Dream or Nevermind. Like I used to do this when I had panic attacks uh, much more frequently than I do now. I would put Sherwood songs on my headphones really because yeah. And I think it's because it would ground me in my own story. Like, Oh, this is me because those songs, (laughs) those, those recordings, 
they have all these layers of meaning and because you remember writing it, you remember recording yeah. it, you remember playing it live. One of the things that happens when you're getting panicky is you can feel like you're losing control, like you're not yourself. Some people feel even kind of disassociative when they're anxious. And so a three minute song can have like a half a year of my life compressed within it. And I just noticed like it brings me back to, oh, yeah, I'm me. There is a through line here. I've done these things. I'll do other things. And so to a lesser degree than the Sherwood records, which obviously I spent more of my time on, these records, though, have been with me through so much of my life that I, I like sort of feel like myself when I'm playing them. Interesting. Why were you laughing at I, me earlier? I'm not do laughing you at to... you. I wasn't okay. laughing at you. I was laughing at the idea that whenever you have a panic attack or feel anxious, you go to Sherwood because As Cities Burn is like the source of so much of my anxiety and several, several of my panic attacks that I've had. <laughs> <laughs> so like if well. I'm feeling anxious and I hear an As Cities Burn comes, song come on, I'm like, fuck no, get me out of here. Yeah. Like I don't want anything to do with this right now. So your number five is my number four. So first we're going to talk about not my number five. And this is Bad Religion, Stranger Than Fiction. Are you a bad religion fan, Aaron? Nope. I could not even hum a bad religion song for you. None of them. I'm totally clueless. So you didn't go the same kind of punk route that I went through high school, for instance. No, not really. I was majorly into punk rock. That was my primary personality and identity for like four years of my life. And bad religion are, you know, really one of the godfather bands of that whole, you know, 90s kind of skate punk big okay. scene of, of, you know, no effects and rancid. And that that really was kind of my my main scene uh, in high school. And Stranger Than Fiction uh, would have been one of my earlier, earliest exposures to punk rock, like via that Live 105 rock station in the Bay Area. They would have played songs like Infected and 21st Century Digital Boy. Okay. Those got a lot of play. Let's yeah. see if we, I, I just want to see what we can trigger in you here or if you recognize these songs. So here's 21st okay. Century Digital Boy. Cause I'm a 21st Century Digital Boy. I don't know how to live, but I got a lot of toys. My daddy's a lazy middle class intellectual. My mommy's on Valium, so intellectual. Hey, life a mystery. Okay, what year did that come out? 94 i will no check. shit okay Almost and so was that before offspring no smash is also 94 so same year and they're on the and they were both epitaph bands they had been both on epitaph and in 1994 the offspring released smash on epitaph and bad religion jumps to a&m for stranger than fiction okay. it is their eighth studio album they're oh easily, God. of any band we're going to talk about here, they are easily the furthest into their career at the point of their major label debut, their eighth album. Holy shit. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, I obviously hear the the influence on so many other bands that I am aware of. Right. Like AFI, mm -hmm. Offspring, although it sounds like they were happening at the same time. Yeah. But yeah, I've never heard that song in my entire life. <laughs> wow. I don't know this band. This won't be interesting to you, but I think for Bad Religion fans, it's funny to me to point out that they do make the major label jump, and they mostly sound like themselves on this record. It sounds like a Bad Religion album. It just happens to be, I think, the best Bad Religion album, but it doesn't sound like 
they're really jumping for something different, okay. except the bridge of Infected, which sounds like B-rate Nirvana. Mm, okay. That's not a punk band. <laughs> no. That's just like grunge. Yeah. Well, what's funny is it was like grunge, but it still had the punk drum mix. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> the kind of high pitched snare and like yeah. Yeah. really pronounced um, ride cymbal. Mm hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, pingy, that type of thing. A pingy so. ride. Yeah. 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 Okay. But let's listen to this song, Stranger Than Fiction. This song is so clever. It's so catchy. I just feel like they're firing on all cylinders. I tend to prefer. I'm just talking to the audience now because Lunsford, this is all Greek to you, but I prefer the poppier songs, which are written by Brett Gerwitz, who's the founder of Epitaph, to the more kind of straight punk stuff, which is great. So the graphing. founder of Epitaph was in Bad Religion? Yeah. Founding member. This, or I'm getting early, an education right now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Brett. So here's Stranger Than Fiction, written by the owner of Epitaph Records, Brett Gerwitz. Obituary. Oh yeah, cockroach nets, rattling traps. How many devils can you fit up on a matchet? Karen Alcini killed the Kerouac cat. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Okay. What do you think about that song? I mean, I can just hear how every punk band I've ever heard is influenced by them. So, yeah. like, how mainstream was this? I'm curious. Like, that's hard to say. I was in the Bay Area of California. Are they from there? No, they're well, they're from LA. Okay. But just in general like it's it's a it's not quite as punk friendly as Los Angeles and Orange County are, but it's kind of the next market after that. So okay. any punk band getting radio play, Rancid, Green Day, Bad Religion, uh Offspring, we got a we got a lot of it. I mean, there's no like punk or alt rock radio in Atlanta or Little Rock, Arkansas. It was Rock radio or right. B98.5, you know, hits of the 80s and 90s or whatever. Right. Your number five is my number four. Let's talk about the year that punk broke. Nirvana, never mind. <laughs> I almost left it off. And I almost feel like I have it on there out of, like, obligation. And what I'm getting at, like, I think I like In, Ur in Utero better. Mm -hmm. But it is, like... I text you this, I would have felt like a fool leaving it off. Like, yeah. How could I put the cranberries over that? <laughs> even though I right. love, I love the cranberries. I'm not even saying I don't love Nirvana or even appreciate, like, I don't know. It, it was also that thing where I was like, okay, what, what do I think now versus like, what was my experience in real time? Yeah. Cause like my experience in real time was like, what year did this come out? 92. It came out at the end of 91, and the big sort of yeah. blow-up was 92, yeah. Yeah, and so and that blow-up lasted for a while, but, like, that was, you know, pretty early before my, like, yeah. awakening to this yeah. type of music. So I never go to Spotify and put on fucking Nirvana. I don't do it. Yeah. But I know that this record is so fucking important <laughs> that I don't know how to leave it off, but I obviously have four other records that I think are better. Yeah. So I did hear it as, you know, close to when it 
came out. So it came out at the end of 91. It blows up in 92. I get into rock in 93, and it's still completely carpeting the radio. So when I get into rock music, it is one of the first five records I get into. Yeah. So that feels close, about as close as it can be. You know, I was, we were just too young. Like our Gen X older brothers and sisters would have had a better sense of Nirvana's place in the culture. I remember the day he died and seeing people crying on MTV news and stuff and the regular news and just like not really getting that it would have made them so sad. And, and I think that that's because I was too young. Like, I, I don't think I understood what Kurt meant to people because yeah. I was just not old enough to get it yet. But musically, I mean, this record is down there at the bedrock for me. Dave Grohl, obviously, like, yeah, I don't know how a guy can be in two bands like that. Un- unbelievable. <laughs> like, yeah, that that's insane. And um, the records sound great. Yeah, I still I still pretty much love the way that Nevermind sounds. Like so yeah. I'm going to play In Bloom. This is a a song that did get some radio play. It's, I think it's the second track, but it wasn't one of the big couple singles and yet I just love it. It's the first first and only drum tablature I ever wrote out. So, uh if people are not drummers or guitar players, tablature is like the easiest way to write out music for someone to learn it's like a number or a little x where you hit the drum and i learned to write drum tablature wrote out the tablature for in bloom and then never wrote another one again (laughs) but this song is incredible It's like a perfect rock drum part right well there you can hear chorus. so dave Grohl hits the drums harder than anybody in history of playing drums and you can hear it you can hear the drums being hit to their max yeah like the head should be breaking they're like the tone is gone it's just pure just power on every hit and if you watch videos of him playing live i'm not saying he he does possess the ability to do dynamic drum playing yeah yeah but on these songs like he just knows like every hit is fucking the hardest i've ever hit a drum ever and it's gonna yeah fucking make everything sound right for this record and without that this record it yeah it would have been i'm not saying it wouldn't have been big but yeah i don't know it plays a a part so rather than trying to talk about nevermind as a non-rock journalist with nothing new to add i'm going to use my time to to do my hot take about Kurt Cobain. Here's my hot take. Okay. He has the spirit of Paul McCartney dressed up in the least Paul McCartney way imaginable, right? Aesthetically and sort of the way he sings. He's he's the opposite Paul in all the accoutrement, but songwriting-wise, he is often doing little little puzzle boxes of interesting chords and melodic choices always ending in a hook and not going on for very long. Just these little puzzle boxes. Okay. Uh, I got, I've got some receipts. I'm going to play you two tracks that are not on. Nevermind that make the point better than Nevermind tracks do. Here is, are you saying Kurt Cobain could have wrote yesterday? It's, it's not quite yesterday. It's more like, and I love her. Uh huh. I don't know. It's, it's these kind of, you'll, I think you'll understand when you hear it. So 
Here's about a girl from Bleach. Yeah, that's a Beatles song. Yeah. All right. I mean, that is a Beatles song. No, that is a Beatles song. So do you think Kurt Cobain was Beatles influence? Like, did he ever talk Big about time. that? Or Okay. You know, I, I remember first realizing it when I was watching Montage of Heck, that documentary about him. And I think there was... I don't know if they mentioned the Beatles or if I just was listening to something that they played like an acoustic demo of or something. Yeah. And I heard it. I was like, oh, that's just like Paul. The turn at the end of that chorus there, you could hear the harmonies with John and George behind it. Totally. It's structured exactly. You're 100% right. you every night. That's such an early Beatles melody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then check out all apologies. Married. Married. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like I appreciate you kind of cheating and pulling in in your duro there. Even though we're not talking about in your duro, but yeah, that's the, to me that's the best uh uh Nirvana single is that. that Buried, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, and that whole thing, like, oh, for the pre-chorus, we're only gonna play one chord, and we're gonna move these things around. It's such a little like white album era, yeah, slightly experimental pop song. And then I, I do think you hear it a little bit in one track from Nevermind on a plane. I think especially that that third phrase where he kind of goes just straight major. It sounds like I want to hold your hand for yeah, one yeah, yeah. quarter of the of the verse and then yeah. back to the minor thing. But it's like that's totally a Paul move. Nirvana, they get this like credit for being this counterculture kind of like fucking shit up. But if you really listen to it, it pop rock. Good songs always sound good with just a piano and a, a guy singing it, right? And so, yep. Uh, Kurt Cobain was no different, and that's yeah. what pisses me off about my <laughs> band. This, or like people like my ah, Kurt didn't have a problem with being a pop writer. So why why did I or why did my people? Thanks to Aaron Lunsford for joining me. Thank you for listening. If you think that your friends might like this episode, eh, send it to them. It would help us uh, as we get this new show going. And uh, feel free to rate, subscribe, like, review, whatever on your various podcast apps. We'll be back next week with part two of this episode. Uh, I had a lot of fun having this conversation with Lunsford. Yeah, I think that's it. See you guys next week. <laughs>